to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm Jake Clark, and we've got a slew of fun features here today, including two interviews, a very interesting segment on tabletop gaming, and a review of what might be the best play I've seen so far this year. But all things in good time. First, uh, first interview we have today is live with Jen Stewart, currently sitting across from me in studio, the set designer for Dead People's Things, a play title that is very awkward to insert into any facet of conversation. It's very true. It's I, I got to imagine working on it when people ask you what you're doing. It's got to be like you always have to explain a little bit at the end, like. I just cut it out and go by the initials. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm helping out with dead people's things. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a weird situation. Now, for our audience members who are not familiar, could you unpack dead people's things a little bit? Again. <laughs> well, that actually is kind of the aim of the play. It's what do you think about it? It's kind of uh, a perfect description of it. Uh, the show is based on, slightly on a true story uh, about a, a family member that inherits a home full of things, and they have to unpack those things and as they're doing that unpacking they're learning about that family member um, and so it's a new play written by Dave DeVoe it's directed by uh, Cam McKenzie uh, with ZZ Theatre and uh, it's been in development for a while but this is its first full production. So the set is essentially the the, the house of a habitual hoarder. It is yes. And I've got to imagine that setting that up has to be quite an undertaking. We've gone with uh, a wall, basically, of cardboard boxes that are uh, do some magical things and have uh, all sorts of surprises that come out of them. And there's a lot of boxography in the show of things moving around um, as the space clears out with the more understanding we have of that character and uh, some new life being breathed into the house. Setting this up has to be like a Mary Kondo in reverse. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, Mary Kondo is actually really helping out right now because there's so much stuff to choose from because everybody's getting rid of things. Um, so that made uh, prop shopping pretty easy. If, uh, if, if you need a couch, I am moving out of my apartment <laughs> just, just for clarity. For any listeners, hit me up. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm very interested in how you came to this because you're a UBC alumnus. I am. In history. I am. Not theater. Yeah, not theater. Now, because this is a, as as I've heard, this is a very meticulously structured story around these documents that are primarily there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to view that as a historian because this is a point where hoarding almost becomes archivism in a way. Yeah, I, if you want to think of the things that we're finding in this house as artifacts of someone's life, that's a great way of looking at it and what those can tell us um, and inform about our ourselves and our own relationships uh, with the things that we choose to keep, what's important to us, um, and how other people view what is important to other people. And is the play sort of an evaluation of that? Um, I think it's more of a story of uh, getting to know someone and uh, the things that we keep with us throughout our life, uh, what, how they represent who we are and who we were. Ah, sort of time capsule. Yeah, in part, and what uh, what we choose to keep and the importance that we put on objects, uh, how that informs our life and the legacy that we leave behind. Now, apropos of legacy, um, in your um, CV, you've also done work for Red Patch. I did do work for Red Patch, that's correct. Now, we reviewed that very recently, which is a pretty intense show, but I imagine <laughs> a slightly different aesthetic behind it. Very different. What was that like by comparison? Um, I made the masks for Red Patch, um, and I was with that show for a very long time. It went through a long development process. 
uh, and that was really neat getting to work through a show as the script evolved several times and uh, we got to play with the new actors and try a bunch of stuff out. We got to tour, which was amazing, um, and getting to rebuild, rebuild and refine things as we went was really fantastic, but definitely a different process of like making and fitting a mask for an individual actor um, as opposed to creating a whole world um, that helps tell the story of uh, one person's life. And as a former, as a well, as a student of history, mm-hmm. Red Patch being a historical play, did that serve any advantage there? Um, the thing with Red Patch was uh, finding a way to uh, link the story we were trying to tell with the history of the events. It's not based on a specific person. Uh, and we also uh, wanted to make sure that we were uh, being very respectful of the uh, nation that we were were working with that was um, uh, being very generous and speaking to us about uh, language and practice. Uh, and the design for a lot of the show is based in history on World War I uh, uniforms and um, the masks uh, take a lot from gas masks of that period. Um, but they also do have an indigenous element. Uh, and so working with uh, some really amazing indigenous artists that were able to um, collaborate with us on how to make those things uh, really help tell their story. It's interesting that you mention that because one thing that we've uh, recently covered as well, well, that we are going to cover on the show, is Women in Waterways, uh, which is an exhibition at the Bill Reed Gallery. Okay. So it's very, very steeped in, of, of course, the the aesthetics of these indigenous nations and specifically here with a focus on uh, women's bodily autonomy. And that has a very interesting role in, in those depictions, I would say, in that artwork. Because I, we actually, yesterday, I went to the, uh, the launch of this exhibition and that the pieces were explained, many of them in relation to a lot of these markers, these icons of identity that to me are, in a way, they're not alien, but they are, like, they're, they're not, they're very not mine, you know? Mm-hmm. So coming to them as an outsider, it's it's uh, it's almost an estranged feeling. Did you feel that when you were designing for Red Patch? Uh, I felt very very honored uh, to be welcomed into telling a story that was uh, the show was actually written by two very dear friends of mine that I went to theater school with. Oh, right. um, yeah, and so it felt very much like we were telling uh, one of their stories, and I was very yeah very honored to be uh, included in that process, and they. Um, had worked with me a lot before and were very generous in allowing me to to come work with them. That's pretty terrific. Yeah. That's, all, that's always, you know, a great time when you can collaborate with people you know that well. So you that's my kinda... favorite part of theater is the collaboration. That's, and are you, who are you, have you collaborated any, blah, have you had any <laughs> interesting, you know, I, the, the thing is I am kind of a motor mouth so my tongue trips over itself occasionally. It's, Martin Scorsese never has this problem. <laughs> He's also like two octaves higher than me, but fair enough. Um, what kind of collaborative processes are you going through with this show, with Dead People's Things? Again, awkward. Uh, we are um, having a lot of great design collaborations between uh, myself and the lighting designer specifically, because we're going to do a little bit of theater magic. Um, we're going to have some things glow and light up and uh, have some reveals that are all uh, done through a collaboration of the set and the lighting effects. Um, and then there's always collaboration in theater between all of the design disciplines and the actors on stage, the director, the writer, the producers, um, the technical and stage crew. It's just a bunch of minds coming together to hopefully solve a problem in a really great and compelling way. Because it's obviously very heavily engaged with the set, with the things that have been hoarded. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff. The actors are doing an amazing job of uh, choreographing boxes that all look identical but all have very specific things inside so getting the right ones in the right space and the right timing um, is a really beautiful dance that they are currently working on. Would you say that these props are kind of a third character because they do reveal this former inhabitant? Yeah I think that they're definitely representative of uh, her which is the sort of what we've called the character um, who's died. Uh, They're definitely these objects are her representation in the play and the interpretation of those objects the other characters have uh, are how they get to know her and how we as an audience get to know her. That's very interesting. 
Now, I have sort of a personal question here, and I, I usually think I think about this occasionally because I don't know if you've seen the videos on YouTube. GQ does this. They have the essentials, the ten essentials. I don't know this. Things. You have guys like they have, they have guys like Two Chains, Action Bronson, Maddie from the the um, 1975 come on and talk about like their ten essentials. It's kind of an advertising thing. I'm gonna assume it is because like I'm cynical about that at this point. <laughs> but you get like um, when. Action Bronson did it very memorably because it seemed like they just had these things in the back of the GQ studio. He's like, no, I'll make magic. <laughs> it's like a Turkish jazz record, a, 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 a glass kitty sculpture he can smoke weed out of. Like, just very random things to be, have as essentials. But they're also very indicative, sort of a very almost negative relief of this personality. <laughs> and I was thinking, for you, what would, say, five essentials be? Five totems that, you know... As, as an archivist, you look back and say, that's you. Oh, my goodness. That's a tough question. Um, I guess, oh, of me personally, um, I do a lot of Highland dance, so a kilt. Um, I think a measuring tape, which is something that I've come to use every day of my life uh, for work. Um, what else do I not go anywhere without? Um Oh my goodness, this is a really tough question. Oh, like, I, I, was, I was thinking about it for me too. Like for me, I was thinking like, okay, like pen, jackknife, probably like a. Well, I have like my notebooks, but I have like three notebooks that are all yellow that I have with me. Like it looks like a full set, so that. And then like anything else just kind of makes me seem like a lunatic. <laughs> like things that I have in my pockets. Well, I mean, you've started with pencil and like a knife, so strong choices. Hey, you know, these, they're, 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 they're useful things. They're, they're useful things. They're, they're like all, you know, valuable things to have. You know, I can, I can whittle. That's, that, that's a productive thing, you there know. There you go. Quittling. I mean, I bite my nails, so I figure what's the point? I'm self-whittling, but you know. Um, there, are, there are things, I kind of think about that a lot, though, because like the essentials videos, like they're all, they're, they're basically plugs for these products, but they're also these interesting way to do an interview. That's always fun to see. Yeah, I think um, something, I mean, it's pretty basic, but my phone, but uh, more so because the way that we have come to collaborate with each other, uh, being able to use uh, like just a messaging app to send photos back and forth of stuff that I'm thinking of for the set or checking in um, with how the day is going in rehearsal or being able to collaborate with another designer on an idea um, and that fast-paced uh, ability to collaborate, especially in design where we will work together uh, really intensely for a really short period of time, and then you might not get to work with that artist again for months or years. Um, so being able to sort of jam-pack a lot of uh, time into that, that brief period of rehearsal and production. One thing that I kind of pick up on from this is that there's this definite sense of, of homecoming and creating a home because you're, they're sort of uh, dealing with this, the clutter that's left over. A lot of that clutter, I imagine, is letters, correspondence, things that are now electronic. Yes, there is. Do you think that shift has made life more portable? More portable, for sure. I think it's made it a little bit more disposable as well. Hmm. Um, I mean, I guess people throw out letters too, but we put more value on them, I think, now because um, they're a little bit rarer. I think about, you know, like you had this, we were talking about this earlier, but there's a lot of these books of the complete correspondence of Charles Bukowski and Al Purdy, things like that. Like, as I mentioned, Philip Larkin, the poet, he had his complete correspondence because he was a librarian. He never threw any of his letters away. Mm -hmm. So all of his letters are available. And uh, I, I don't know what that's going to be in the future. Is it just going to be like the texts? I mean, having, of, can you imagine having all of your texts archived and then published? How horrifying that I would be. I can't imagine. <laughs> I can imagine it. I think, I, th I think we're almost on the way there. I think like... The next when when the YouTubers get old, because I think I have a theory that Logan Paul is going to run for president at some oh, point God. when we're <laughs> when we're at that point, like I'm saying, maybe in the vicinity of about 2040, you're going to start to see the complete WhatsApp correspondence <laughs> of, of like uh, of Gary Vaynerchuk and Logan Paul, something like that, oh, that's so like terrifying. Of, of like meme personalities, <laughs> because that's. That's the way it seems to be developing. That is also a very now prediction to make about the future. But that's that's sort of what I've thought about. That's very interesting. And if you want to see these letters get unpacked, if you want to see this person sort of created by what they've left behind, where and when can we see that? Can you remind our listeners? Uh, I certainly can tell you where. It's at uh, Studio 16. Um, I cannot tell you the date we opened because I don't know off the top of my head. But next week, 
Next week. Check it out. <laughs> ZZ Theater, Dead People's Things. Again, man, go see Dead People's Things. It's like I'm t- pointing people out to a really creepy auction. <laughs> go see Dead People's Things. Hey, man, I got some knuckle bones. <laughs> yeah. Yep, check it out. ZZ Theater, Jen Stewart, Jake Clark, here, now, life. I turn into Maddie Matheson, but in baritone. Um, yeah, so we're going to take a short PSA break. And we'll be right back at you with some uh, with with some things, with some other fun things, with some great segments from our great contributors. Jen, it's been a thrill to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for having me. And break a leg with the production. Thank Cheers. you. We don't need to tell you that Vancouver has a housing problem. Mass evictions. Mass rent evictions. Unfair rent increases. What happened to rent control and protection from unfair eviction? If these or other housing matters concern you, you may be interested in joining the Vancouver Tenants Union. For more information, visit tenantsunion.ca. You know what's better than reading a great magazine? Reading a great magazine that also helps you fight poverty. Megaphone Magazine is sold by homeless and low-income vendors on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria. Vendors buy magazines for 75 cents and sell them for $2. It's flexible, low-barrier work for people who may not have access to traditional jobs. Download the Megaphone app to find vendors and buy the magazine even when you don't have change. And we're back. We are. Uh, we shall be gone almost as soon. Now, joining us in studio right now are two more of our wonderful correspondents, Lua, Sarah, World Life. Again, I'm, I'm going to stop doing that. I, I'm, I'm really not, you know, good at emceeing things. But it's kind of funny that we'll actually be leaving as soon as we came because, Lua, you have pre-recorded a wonderful interview with a gentleman named Jason Dubois. Yes, I have. And I thought I wasn't going to be here for this, which is why you're going to ha- listen to a weird little introduction of me saying I'm not in the studio, but I am. <laughs> well, <laughs> like I me just... opening the show? <laughs> Welcome to their support, CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting to the Seed Muslim Territory of UBC. I'm Jake Clark, and I'm also not here. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that, that would be like the... the, the uh, the, the show where we talk where you know we're talking that's where we go full Joe Rogan and do GM, DMT on the show I don't think he's ever done that but you know it's a matter of time sure <laughs> crowdsourcing one <laughs> alright we'll just play that interview for you and then we shall return uh, as soon as it runs its course here we go hello everyone um, unfortunately I might not be in the studio today but you can still hear my voice. So I'm here today with Dance House Representative Jason Dubois to talk about Momix and a little bit of next year's, uh, the 20s, 19, and 2020 Dance House schedule. So, hey, Jason, so do you want to give us a little introduction about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I work uh, with Dance House. I'm the director of patron relations, so um, I take care of the uh, the marketing and communications and um, audience development pieces. Um, I'm I'm sort of pinch hitting hitting for my colleague Jim uh, Jim Smith, who is actually the programmer for the season, um, as he's traveling today. So I'm I'm happy to be with you to talk about moments and uh, and our next season that we just unveiled. Awesome. And Momix is a very interesting show because it doesn't really follow a the usual dance style, maybe, I'd say. I mean, the description is uh, quite internet t- entertaining and dance illusionist. So I wanted you to um, tell me in your words, how would you describe Momix? Sure. I mean, as a, as a company, they're a little bit um, dance meets circus meets physical theater. Uh, they use a lot of um, simple props to create really um, complex images. Uh, they use lighting effects like black light and so on, again to create um, to create really sort of visual art on stage as part of what they're doing. So they are a bit um, genre bending. As a company, they also work uh, in film and they work some in, in sort of the commercial world and in, in, in things like large public events and so on. So they're definitely uh, unique in terms of what 
you may typically see on the dance house stage, um, but but they are very much movement based. It is it is about movement and 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 physical bodies. So um, so sort of fits well within a, a broad definition of dance, I guess. Yeah, um, I've noticed that lately. Um, this isn't the first show that Dance House is having that's a little bit of gen- genre bending. Um, is that something that Dance House is looking forward to doing, like trying to go into these almost mixed media styles? Yes, I mean, I, I don't know specifically about that, but definitely, um, you know, the the mandate of Dance House is to look at what is new and cutting edge and pushing the form forward um again the momix does draw some inspiration from circus and contemporary circus is also uh, an interesting um an interesting genre that a lot of dance presenters in the world are are, are starting to present and and especially um uh work coming out of canada we see a, a number of countries and a uh, number of uh, companies in montreal who are uh, sort of on the cutting edge of contemporary circus. So it's something that um, that we are definitely looking at. And, uh, and Momix, again, is um, drawing some inspiration from, from circus and, and uh, acrobatics and contortion and those kinds of things. So, um, so yes, maybe is the answer to your question. <laughs> um, but but always, uh, always looking at work that is pushing the form in, in one direction or another. Awesome. And how to come, like, I feel that Momix is, pro- is a company that's probably one of the biggest ones that Dance House has brought in uh, in a while, just because of how how diverse they, how much they work on different fields with film and TV mm-hmm. and dance as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so I was curious about how the process was to, like, actually get them to come to Vancouver and is it their first time in Vancouver? Um, that is a very good question. I don't actually know. They they have not been in Vancouver for a long time, and this may be a Vancouver premiere for the company. But oh, I awesome. I would need to I would need to check that out. I mean, the programming cycle starts typically two to two and a half years out, and and my colleague Jim Smith spends a, a fair amount of time. Uh, seeing work around the world, but also just keeping in touch with presenters and um, and with agents who are moving work around. So the conversation uh, around Momix would have started, yeah, probably about two years ago. Um, much of it is all to do with sort of uh, dates and uh, when we're able to access the Vancouver Playhouse and aligning all those things and. Um, sometimes they, they line up well and sometimes they don't line up as easily. In this case, uh, Momix was, was touring a work. Uh, it's all part of uh, a celebration of 30 years of uh, Moses Pendleton's work. So they're, t- they're touring a retrospective program and the timing all worked out that we were able to fit it in at the, at the end of the season. So um, it's, there's, no, uh, there's no great secret formula making all the programming work but a lot of conversations and um and uh, trying to line it all up and what a finale huh like ending the mm-hmm. season with such a great show mm-hmm. no it's a fantastic way to finish the season it, it's it's uh again it's a number of short works so uh you're not going to settle in for a, a long 75 minute program in fact you're going to see somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 different short pieces um, but but all exciting, colorful, active, physical work. So yeah, no, it feels like the um, sort of the, the the perfect close to a season, but also the perfect way to usher in spring and uh, and and have some you know some really fun work on stage. That's amazing. So with uh, so I no- I noticed that the other title for the show is also Viva Momix. Mm-hmm. And so it's really that, right? Like bringing in a little bit of all these different shows that they have already done, and exactly. creating this like um, this very unique show that is the best of everything they've ever done. So it, I'm yep. guessing it's very mixed, right? It's it's a big mixed program. Yeah. Again, there are works in the program that I think are um, you know close to 30 years old, and there are works that were created within the last. A couple of years, so it is. It's a it's a full range. Um, audience members will will really get a sense of you know what 
the company has has done and where it's come from and and um, have a sense of Pendleton's work as it's evolved over his uh, career with the company. Well, I'm so excited to see Momix. Honestly, I love genre bending. I love all these things that are like play on dance and just go a little bit further because dance, after all, is this amazing expression and it shouldn't be limited to one single style, right? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so on that note, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what should we expect and look forward to in 2019 and 2020? Sure, yeah, we've just unveiled this season, uh, and we're, we're renewing all of our subscribers now, and uh, on April 13th, we'll, uh, we'll have subscriptions on sale for, for new subscribers and, and people looking to, to buy a package for the season, which is the best way to get tickets. I, I should say that uh, Momix is very nearly sold out, um, but uh, if, if you're unable to get tickets online, do come to the theater uh, at 6 p.m. We often uh, have a few tickets that we're able to release on the days of the shows. Um, but for next season, yeah, we, uh, again, have a number of shows uh, that are genre-bending. We start the season with uh, an Australian company called Bangara. They are uh, an Aboriginal uh, Australian company that is drawing on uh, Australian movement, uh, sorry, Aboriginal movement from Australia, and and again, using uh, multimedia presentation and um, and scenic elements to uh, to tell uh, some stories of, of that history. Uh, it's all music from from those traditions, and um, and there's a bit of video up on the website, but it is also very uh, very highly visual uh, kind of work. Um, and then we are partnering with a circus company, uh, or presenting a circus company in partnership with with the Colch. Seven Fingers from Montreal is working with um, Art Cirque, which is uh, a circus company from the north, and they they're creating a new show. And so we know very little about it. Uh, it's uh, it will premiere at the National Arts Centre just before it comes to Vancouver. So um, this is one of the things that uh, dance presenters or performing arts presenters do from time to time is take a risk on something new so it will be um it'll be an adventure for all of us yeah (laughs) a surprise absolutely the audience vancouver audiences will have seen the seven fingers um they were here with a show in 2017 called cuisine and confessions um and 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 they are one of those circus companies i was telling you about who um, are, are doing great work out of Montreal that is being seen around the world. Um, other highlights in the season, we've got, again, when you talk about pushing the form forward, um, uh, Rocio Molina, a Spanish flamenco dancer who you know comes out of, uh, out of the flamenco tradition, and we're partnering with the Flamenco Festival to present this work. But then she, uh, she really is pulling that form apart and pulling apart some of the trappings of the of the form there's an image uh, on some of our material you'll see that she's wearing what looks like a very traditional kind of flamenco dress but in fact she's on her back with bare feet and you know and a foot up in the air kind of thing so it is that that kind of um that kind of advancing the form in that direction um we've got a couple companies uh who are back on the series who were hits from uh 2014 and uh, 2017 grupo corpo a brazilian company they will be here with 14 dancers and a band and again coming out of that brazilian music tradition uh doran's dance will be back with a show called etm double down which is uh, sort of coming out of a fusion of tap and electronic music so a, a big mix, something for everyone uh, in the season, and um, and yeah, we're we're excited that we finally we're finally able to talk about it. That's so awesome! Like honestly, I'm so excited for everything you talked about, and I actually just realized that I've seen Bangara uh, before, like performing, and they are absolutely amazing. That's something I definitely look forward to see. What are they bringing in new here to Vancouver? Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, that's awesome. So excited. So mm-hmm. do you want to tell us again when and where can we see Momix? 
Yeah, so Mumix is uh, April 12th and 13th. That's a Friday and Saturday at the Vancouver Playhouse. The shows are at 8 p.m. Uh, the details are on our website, dancehouse.ca. Uh, and again, the shows are getting very close to being sold out, but if you're unable to see tickets online, it, it is worth coming by the theatre when the box office opens at 6 p.m. because we often have a pair or two of, of tickets to release. So we're, we're super pumped to end the season with a couple sold-out performances of Momix. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jason, for uh, taking the time for this interview and coming here to the show. Um, I hope to talk to you soon and talk about some other of the performances, maybe a little bit more in-depth. Sounds good. Perfect. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. Bye. That's intriguing stuff, and I suspect we'll see some segments on it in the near future. Yeah, there you go. See, alliteration. She shells, she shells on the seashore. Uh, but if that, if Momix is either is you know not fabulous enough or too ambulatory, we actually have another interesting. Uh, well, not ambulatory necessarily. If we have another interesting segment from our currently absent correspondent Leah Siegel on uh, something gaming, G A Y M I N G, uh, and I'll let her describe that because. This is actually a lot of fun. I've had some friends who do this. I believe they still do. And I've wanted to cover this for a while, but uh, you're going to see why. It's, it's, I'm very thrilled she did. Uh, here we go. You ready for this? Uh, that's a teleporter. Yeah. I'll get to that. First time I met the Game Master Tim, or the GM Tim, was at the Stormcrow Ale House on West Broadway. He was sitting at the back at a large table covered with games like Code Names and Magic the Gathering. So we're at Quests and Queers. It's a board game night that we do at the Stormcrow Tavern and the Stormcrow Ale House once a month at each location. And it's where we create a safe space for anyone who identifies as queer, whether that's LGBTQIA2+, or anything else that's not included in the alphabet. Um, and so we would just make a safe space and I teach everyone to play games. Yay! What stands out about Tim is his energy. He spends these Tuesdays teaching people games, a task that requires both charisma and the ability to articulate rules clearly. He's got both. Some nights we end up playing a big game of eight of us, but when there's groups of 30, you don't get to do one big game, so we'll have multiple games going at one time, um, and I'll just float and make sure everyone's copacetic, essentially, and knowing the game and teaching the game and not worrying about anything else. The group formed about a year and a half ago and meets twice a month. Quests and Queers is billed as an inclusive LGBTQA2 game night, but Tim says everyone's welcome. Uh, it's open to anyone who identifies as queer. And if you are straight and you want to come and play, I'm not going to say no. I'm just going to say, if you're not cool with it all, then I don't want you there. While Tim loves all types of tabletop games, he does have a favorite, Dungeons and Dragons. The game, I love role-playing games. They're my passion. And D&D is kind of like the peak of the crop at the moment. It's 45 years old and it's in its prime. So I wanted to come up with a way to mix that with something that I really love. For Tim, that something is drag, and the result he mixes is another event, Fierce Adventures, a Dungeons and Dragons drag show. Once a month, Tim and a group of drag queens come together to play the game in front of an audience. It's your typical D&D game with the occasional dance number. This is Adam Zappel, a drag king who plays a half-orc named Pork Bun on Fierce Adventures. When I met him, he was dressed as his character, face covered with forest green face paint and a bedazzled scar cut through his eyebrow. He was also wearing the coolest, most mesmerizing contacts. Last year I kind of dropped out of drag because of I wanted my career back and I because of the pressure of trying to really fill the niche for different types of drag in the city and really trying hard to find venues that would accommodate it. Um, 
kind of got a little lost, but then this show actually has made drag fun again. So this show is trying, it's starting to reinvent my brain into drag again, and I like it's been a big, it's a comfort zone. <laughs> this sense of comfort draws people to question queers too. Felix is an agender individual, meaning they don't identify as either a man or a woman. They moved to Vancouver in the autumn of 2017 to go to grad school, and they say that the majority of the friends they have now were made through quests and queers and other queer gaming opportunities. I'm one of those, like, air quote, quiet queers. Like, I'm interested in just, like, sitting on a couch and, like, hanging out with a friend. Like, I don't have the energy or stamina to, like, go out partying. <laughs> For non-drinking queers, like, the queers who don't, like, socially exist in bars and clubs, there are really restricted options for socializing. I really appreciate it as a space that's not that. Tim, though, sees games as serving a broader purpose. Why games? Because everyone games. Everyone has played Monopoly. Everyone understands why it's a crappy game, <laughs> right? Like, so everyone, yeah, exactly. It's a table flipper, right? Everyone games. So because everyone games, it's the one standard that you can use to bridge all the other gaps. The folks over at Quest and Queers call themselves gamers, like G-A-Y gamers. I talked to Tim and Adam again. We consider ourselves gamers with a Y. Mm. Sure, but it's more fun with the Y. <laughs> it's simple. That's pretty much it. Like, it literally started just as a smart-ass remark yeah. online, and it became something bigger. Yeah. Like most most online hashtags, it just it was a way of identifying, and so that's what it became. Because a lot of gamers had that negative connotation of like just the douchebaggery that yeah. comes along with like online gaming, right? So so gamer with a Y became a, a separation from that. Oh, absolutely. All yep. games. All games. Anywhere you have competition. Anywhere where you have humans, because yeah. we're not always the greatest of things. <laughs> like, simply, right? Like, so it's events like this to try and modify that. Tim says that things have been changing in Vancouver's queer community, in part because of apps like Grindr. So, because of tech, you no longer have to go to the gay street in order to be around fellow queers. Right? Or even to find other people. Whereas 15 years ago and before, that's exactly what it was, which is why Davy Street existed, because there was nowhere else for people to go. He says his mission with quests and queers and fierce adventures is fostering multiple new safe spaces in Vancouver. It's not extending the safe space of Davy, it's just trying to make sure that safe spaces exist everywhere throughout the city. And for people like Felix, these spaces are important, not just for finding community, but also for thinking about their identity in new ways. Um, definitely been exploring my like gender identity a lot more in the last couple years, um, and I've only like pretty recently started identifying as a gender. Um, and so, like tabletop games like D and D, they've really allowed me to like explore different aspects of like gender presentation and gender identity um, in a way that. I don't always feel comfortable or safe doing in like my real life. So it's like a really low stakes way to try out different things. I've played characters that are female, I've played characters that are agender, I've played characters that are like gender fluid, uh, you know, like presentation. No matter like what character you create and how you create it, like there's always gonna be a part of yourself in it. It's nice. If you're interested in playing tabletop games yourself, head to Stormcrow on one of the Tuesdays the group's there. You'll find them in the back, spread out over a couple of tables. Tim will, of course, be there too, probably wearing a graphic tee featuring a cartoon unicorn. No worries if you don't know how to play any games. Tim's got you covered. Well, that was a fantastic segment there. Very interesting stuff. For the record, I really do want to see a live stream D&D drag show. I think you could seriously get some RuPaul eyeballs on that one, you know, that audience. For sure. For sure. <laughs> I mean, I am obsessed with RuPaul a little bit. Um, yep. It was my introduction to drag culture and 
um, I understand that it's one one aspect of drag culture, and I'm, now I know a lot more. But it was definitely an entryway, and if this is an entryway and like having a kind of RuPaul style being an entryway to other people, like I'm down for it. You know, you know, I, I, it occurs to me if I was to be a drag queen, I would be climate change themes, and my name would be Anthropocene. That's nice. <laughs> my name, like, I don't even know what my last name would be, but my first name would definitely be Venus. Yeah, <laughs> that's, I, that's, that's the cool only name. Actually, Venus, yeah. and then something, and I, I, I haven't gotten that creative yet. <laughs> I, it may be relevant. The next PSA we have to we're playing is called Girl Pool. Uh, I don't know what that is. We're about to find out. Then we'll come back to do some quick play reviews and a spotlight on Doxa, which is going to be very interesting. Uh, it does not involve doxing that we're aware of. <laughs> Girl Pool will be bringing their ever-evolving sound to the Baltimore Cabaret on April 13th. You don't want to miss this. With guests Hatchie and Claude, grab your tickets at eventbrite.com or Red Cat Records. Concerts presents Philly-based indie rock band Hop Along with guest Summer Cannibals, live in Vancouver. Catch them at the Biltmore Cabaret on April 7th. Tickets are moving fast, so grab yours at eventbrite.com or Red Cat Records. There we are! Now, uh... Doxa is an event that we've had quite a few emails for. We've had quite a lot of uh, publicity for Doxa, but we actually haven't covered it. I think Ashley did when I was on the show a couple years ago, but we haven't done any spotlighting features. So going to the Doxa opening launch where we saw some of these features. Well, trailers for these features. Trailers for these features, rather. Um, Would have been a long sit. (laughs) That room was hot. Yeah, the room was very hot. And a lot of filmmakers, a lot of directors, mm-hmm. a lot of creative people all brought together for DOXA. And in case you don't have any idea what DOXA means, it's Documentary Film Festival. Um, they will have be having um, documentaries from 18 different countries, a lot of them by Canadian filmmakers. I'm very excited for several of them. They, there are a few main themes that they are going to talk about this year. Um, well, not talk about, well, so they're kind of grouped together. There's spotlights and then there's curated programs. Yeah. So for spotlights, there's politics of place, which I find probably the most fascinating of them all, which are those documentaries that talk about specific locations and life in those specific locations targeting one thing or the other um one of those is which ones Ooh. there's oh, um uh pomelo which is about this neighborhood called pomelo and it's about this how to negotiate between the neighborhood that is kind of dying because it's being is that the one in the cemetery uh, no, that's a different one. The cemetery one is called. That one seems. Fa- there, there's that's a, that one seems fantastic. It's like a city of the dead sort of thing. It's like it's it's. I think it's in some in South America, but I don't recount. I don't. It's, recall. it's literally called City of the Dead. Oh. Um. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> so my memory's better than I thought. Yeah, and it's about this huge cemetery that has its underground, and about the people that work there, and how people mourn, and how like that entire process. Yeah, like you're just they're just living in a giant mausoleum, and it's in Spain, not not Latin America. Oh, okay. I, I was I was kind of thinking like a sort of Gigi Sal Guerrero aesthetic. Like there's like, you know, don't go out at night. Why? And then just cuts to all kinds of demons. Yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry. Just uh, just gonna go pray the rosary about ninety times and then go to bed screaming. Uh, so another one of the spotlights is communities of care. And it talks about relationships between people and dogs and animals. One of, if you're a dog lover, you'll probably love one called Buddy, which is literally about people's attachment to their pets. One sort of thing that's kind of interesting in light of this focus on community is one of these isn't really a documentary. It's almost like a home vlog. It's called Postings from Home. It's on May 4th. Oh, yeah. That's a really interesting one. It's a filmmaker named Kelly O'Brien who's like, she's doing, you know, tape making home movies, but 
thanks to this, it's basically a stream of that. Like, it's very, like, I don't know what that says about where we're going, but, you know, we're going a place. It's interesting to look at. Um, yeah, I think the two I'm most excited about are Push. Oh, that's the housing crisis. The housing, because it, it talks about housing crisis. Um and living in Vancouver, yeah, I say. I <laughs> it feels very, very relevant. Um, it will be shown at Van City on May fourth. If you are available, go definitely go check it out. Um, it is something that is very, like, incredibly relevant for us here in Vancouver. And about how to, the trailer is also very heart wrenching because it gets to a point where. They're like, well, if you can't afford to live here, you shouldn't be here. And that's, it's like that's in, in London, England, too. That's like in uh, Kensington Gardens. And it's like that's that's not how things work. Like it people, be. It, that, <laughs> well, that's practically how they work. It's not how they should work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like with the like. There's. I was telling. I was mentioning this before, but you know who benefits from the housing crisis right now? Detroit. Oh, because yeah. Detroit bottomed out. Like Detroit is not gonna get any further hit than it already is. Detroit is now the bike capital of the states, which is interesting, but if you know anything about the history of Detroit, that's hilarious, because that was a town built by Henry Ford. <laughs> so an anti-Semitic auto baron constructed an entire city that is 100 years later the one, both, both one of the most racially mixed cities in the states and the bike capital of America. That is that is how that is the the fallout of essentially of redlining and technological innovation in the states. You can't kill Detroit. <laughs> and then another one that I'm really interested and really excited about is called "Because We Are Girls," and just for this oh, yeah. title, um, just the title itself, I I was already interested by the title, and once I actually learned what it was about, I was so much more interested this is a little heavy uh um, it's a little bit heavy we were actually fortunate enough to meet meet the director of this film Baljeet um at the the launch um uh, and the way she described like uh, so this story is about the one percent of women that are able to take their cases of sexual abuse into a legal court mm-hmm the 1% that actually make it and try to prosecute um, their abusers. And it's about these three women that have d- different stories, and but they bond together over their experiences and, and they have been abused by a family member. And the thing that is that I the director pointed out and I really want to say uh, is that Yes, it's a very heavy topic. Mm-hmm. And talking to her, I was like, "Oh my god, how am I like? How can we watch this and not just feel so emotionally devastated that this is a thing in 2019? Like people are not able to come out with their stories. People are not able to find justice." And she's like, "Yes, that's all true. However, there's also the lighter parts. There's the fact that these women are amazing mothers. These women are doing this to change the lives for the future of mm-hmm. their daughters. These women are more than their abuse. They have families. They are amazing by themselves, and they're more than this. And there are moments of, uh, there are funny. There are moments of revelations, and there are moments that are just light. And um, I'm so curious to see what it actually." is in the end you know like with a film like this that's dealing with so many very very difficult things to have that silver lining in the end of like look this terrible thing did happen however it does not define who I am as a person there's some of that too in well not to to make an awkward transition because it's not equivalent but there's a similar thing in one show that I do kind of want to talk about to close out our show right now which is Cherry Docs uh, which also concerns a very grave crime uh, and is, is really a meditation on it in a lot of respects. Now, Cherry Docs is uh, from Cave Canem. It's at Pacific Theater. It's running until April 28th. And I'll say this right now. Go see it. Um, this may well be the best play I've seen this year. Um, it's incredibly engaging. It is one act, and it really does fill that one act. Um, now, when I interviewed Kenton Clausen about this, we might have mentioned that the crime in this one is 
the, it's not equivalent to talk about uh, sexual violence in the same way as a hate crime, although the sad thing is a lot, those do intersect at points. Uh, not in this play, mind you. Um, but they're both extremely relevant to the media discourse at this point. And apropos of that, uh, David Gao wrote this play, which is about a Jewish attorney defending an unrepentant neo-Nazi in the late 90s, like when American History X was made. And um, David Gao has, is so extraordinarily vindicated that people might call him an oracle because this play gets so shockingly right the antecedents of what has happened with the sudden rise in well, well, fascist ideology in general, and especially with the iconography and terms of neo-Nazism. And they actually have a small glossary uh, at the beginning of this uh, of these of neo-Nazi terminology and things that are relevant to the show. It's, it, it's interesting about that because the title is actually quite elliptic. Uh, the title pertains to Cherry Doc Martens, which are the weapon that the guy used. They're steel-toed boots. So if you if you kick somebody into severe injury with Cherry Doc Martens, you're committing assault with a weapon. Mm -hmm. And that is what Mike, played by Kenton Klassen, does to have Danny Dunkelman, played by John Voth, defend him. And the the thing about this play is that, uh, Kenton also mentioned this in the interview, it is a play about redemption. It is a play that distinctly focuses on this attorney. Danny legitimately does believe in an ideal of tolerance where somebody like uh, Mike can be repentant. I'm going to spoil the play here, so please do heed my advice a bit. But this repentance is successful. And you realize at the end of it, the thing is, this play starts really abruptly because there is no scene that introduces Danny's motivation. There's a scene that introduces how he sees the world, and you can ascertain from that what his motivation may be, but it doesn't tell you why he's willing to sit before somebody who's an unrepentant neo-Nazi who says to him, in an ideal world, he'd see you. He says... Mike says to Danny, in an ideal world, I'd see you exterminated, but I need you now. And the reason why is because Danny believes fundamentally in, the, in the, this principle that if you're a humanist, if you're someone who believes in participatory democracy, you need to believe in, which is that humans are either intrinsically good, a Rossovian view of the world, or a Lockean view of the world where people are neutral and capable of change. And that's very, yeah, that's very critical to Cherry Docs because it does work. Mike does change. And it's more, it, it has more veracity than American History X because he changes perceptibly based on just realization. And it's incredibly intense how that happens. But the cost of that for Danny is the cost of his marriage and probably his mental health. So he's not wrong. Danny's correct. But he just underestimated the cost that comes with that. And if you want to see that, if you're still hanging in there, I'm not doing this justice by speaking about it because you really do need to see this. The intensity is amazing, and I give them full credit for doing so. Uh, shows like this are part of the reason, you know, I really love Pacific, and I'm honestly going to miss it when I'm gone. So check it out. On uh, This is also my last show before the summer. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to fly out, and so hope you guys don't miss me too much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back. Don't worry about it. Um, but, yeah, uh, the medicine show is coming up right afterwards. Yep. And so thank you so much for listening, tuning in today. And, yeah, I won't be here next week, but <laughs> here. Sarah's here, Jake's here, and Marguerite are going to be here to give you an amazing show like everyone deserves because, oh, my God, there's so much <laughs> there's so much stuff going on in the True. city. And I'm part of me is like, I really need to go home and I really need this break. And then part of me is like, I just want to stay here and go <laughs> to all of this ama these amazing shows. Well, you'll have the whole <laughs> summer for that. Yeah. Well, there we are. <laughs> This has been The Arts Report. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Lua. I'm Sarah. 